You ready? Yep. How about you? Yep. Start it up. podcasting from beautiful east tennessee and brought to you by brv studios this is have you heard our show that brings up random news and crazy events with a lot of other topics you've probably never heard of for instance have you heard about the former inmates that are finding work as basketball referees what about the houses that a 3d printer can make in one day or why there was a finger on the floor at a kansas city strip club we cover this and a whole lot more here is episode 39 from the big red van Here we are, everybody. Welcome. Episode 39, HYH. You got that in Spanish? Treinta ocho. That's eight, isn't it? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Nueve? No, is it nueve? It's treinta nueve. Oh, yeah. 39, man. 39 in. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Man. Deep. Deep. So deep. How was your last week? Worked a lot. Yeah. But not at work. I was maybe putting in about five, six hours a day. We live out here in the... And the BFE, where the weeds grow, and mm-hmm. so... All the rain we've had, too. Oh, yeah. So I had a, a heyday of weeding everything, putting down the the paper that keeps weeds from coming back, and then remulching everything, and planting all of our flowers back, and stonework, and everything else, man. I saw the stonework. It was fun. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. You even put the, the big family J mm-hmm. insignia out there in the lawn. Sure did. I like that. What What's the next edition for lawn art? Backyard fire pit. Okay. Yeah, we're going to bring in a bobcat in the uh, near future to level out a couple spots in the backyard, playground, and fire pit. What else is next? We got the goat <laughs> pen. We got the the backyard <laughs> yeah, dream. And then, the, and then the the goat expansion. Have you ever thought about like a outdoor backyard kitchen with the kind of weather that we get? I have thought about that. Like one of those brick ones. They require you to use like proper good bricks and stuff. For sure. And all that stuff's not cheap. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Just real expensive. But I would, t- oh, if, if I had an outdoor like uh, stone or brick like pizza oven, dude, I'd be wearing that thing out. I'm telling you, man. Anyway, it's good to be back in. I uh, I worked all week, so it's good to be back in here. Oh, and- yeah. Get away from it for a little bit and uh, just uh, shoot the shit with you. So here we are, two-man van. Uh, We're going to do something just slightly different. We're 39 episodes in and we're always making adjustments, but we want to give everybody a little bit of a rundown. Here's a layout of our lists really fast and then we'll get into them. But uh, this week, I'm running down Trappist Monks Want Their Money Back, Break BRV Off a Piece of That Two Billion, 3D Printed House, anyone? (laughs) <laughs> and plasma is a 20 billion dollar business what do you got i'm coming back with uh jail referees uber kills a pedestrian biting strippers and stephen hawking oh i can't wait you ready to get into it oh yeah everybody have you heard so uh apparently there's a, a nationwide shortage of youth sports referees mostly related to crappy pay ridiculous workloads and uh abusive parents the fact that everyone hates referees oh yeah so anyways but in iowa um a high school basketball we don't have to be pc about referees dude i hate referees oh yeah full disclosure (laughs) this entire conversation let's cover the fact that (laughs) me and referees do not get along oh well i mean it's i don't disagree let's disparage them But a a basketball official in Iowa, um, Jim Bice, he said he's also a correctional officer at Fort Dodge Correctional Facility in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Okay. Yeah. Ran into a couple of those in my time. Um, at the correctional office, he's known as the ref because he also, like, as part of the um, rehabilitation, I guess, he likes to go play basketball with the guys and ref games for them and stuff like that and, like, just be involved with them. Okay. So they call him ref. Sure. Anyways... So he's got this plan uh, as a re- part of his rehabilitation program at his jail to put them back in the workforce as referees. Bad idea. <laughs> 
what, so what kind of what the kind only of criminals? Ca- the are we only candidate, like, yeah. That, I mean, I'm petty like, theft or felons? Yeah, like not violent offenders. Not okay. not somebody that stabbed somebody and then got out, and then they're like <laughs> letting him be the poor judgment. <laughs> yeah, that's not what they're trying to do. It's for like the the non-violent, just people that had a bad choice once, and you know, and went to jail for a couple years, and they're trying to. Did they have to have like an affinity for basketball or something? So, or did they just turn non-basketball people into referees to make the problem even worse? Uh, I don't, I don't. It didn't specify. I guess it's just like at the jail they play a lot of basketball as like a pastime, and so that's just like the thing. So that makes you fit to be an official. <laughs> I mean, come on. This, this, see, this is the problem with someone that especially the high school level but you all you have to do is turn on an nba game and watch it for i mean i'll set the over under at 90 seconds before a call is made that you're like huh (laughs) or a call is not made that you're like what yeah he got killed officiating is terrible at all levels and the fact that they're taking people out of prison and putting stripes on them, to me, it just... No, no, it's people that are, like, finished their sentence. Like, at the end of, like, basically while they're in jail, he's teaching them, like, referee code, like all the rules and regulations and... Tomato, tomato. And then when they get out, there's a job waiting on them as referees because they need them all over the place really bad. So it's... The I world mean, needs ditch diggers, too. <laughs> That is also true, but um, but like it's like a profession that's currently like people are fleeing away from it. Like apparently, it is like a true crisis right now in a lot of um, a lot of places where like they can't get people to fill the role of being the referee. Yeah, I'd start in a gym. Is where I'd start. Yeah, in Iowa, of their like um, I guess their uh, their high school athletic association, like all the different referees that work for all the high school systems. They had 1,490 employees in 2007, and then they're down to 963 and have not been able to continue to fill those roles. I believe it. And Iowa is a very heavy basketball state, very heavy in basketball. So I believe that totally. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, like, the, I, I'm sorry that this isn't going well because I extremely hate officials, but I, I wasn't pro official. I was just thinking it's crazy that the this guy had this idea to get the, the inmates out. Maybe he Googled what's the most open job in our zip code. That's and probably it, true. And it was like, oh, let me see if I can convince him into this, regardless of work conditions. Because conditions, even if you are an official for a six-year-old's game, you're going to get killed by people. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what kind of contest for a basketball game you're officiating. Every time you blow your whistle, you're getting questioned uh, by people like me. Another reason that he uh, did... C- he got this idea was because that position and basically in all states doesn't require a background check yeah, and okay you can, you're you, making my argument stronger you're make you can be a felon and be a basketball referee yep <laughs> i mean people's rights right right to privacy yeah oh and one other thing i thought was kind of funny is uh the turnover rate Hardly anybody that gets into that profession lasts more than two years. Yeah. And the only people that make it past like seven years are like old men. That's just what they do. And they could care less about the people yelling at them. They probably got thicker skin. Yeah. They realize the job. I mean, I think that was probably one of the, the biggest complaints of any coach, regardless of level, is consistency and them being able to take someone who disagrees with them. Because, again, every time they blow their whistle in a basketball game, 50% of the people in the building are going to hate you for it. The other 50% of the people are probably going to like you for it. That's just how basketball officiating works. And you've got to know that going in. You can't go in with a quick trigger on somebody the first time that they disagree with you. Those, I think those two aspects, having thick skin and what was the first thing I said? I don't know. Consistency. Having, oh, yeah. thick, having thick skin and being consistent yeah, you're right. are, are the two things that any coach asks for. If you're consistently shitty, okay, I can adjust to that. If you're consistently calling the game tight, okay, my players will adjust to that. But if it does, if I don't know what a foul is right. <laughs> 35 minutes into the game, then that's where we have a problem. And we're probably going to get into an argument. And if you're thin-skinned, I'm going to get tossed and I'm going to get suspended. And thus, the hate grows. Oh, yeah. But dude, officials, and that, speaking, I'm glad you brought this up. March Madness is going on right now. Yep. And one thing I can say as a... Uh, Someone who, I don't know, I guess I would categorize him as someone who dislikes officials a little bit. Um, After you spent like five minutes declaring your hate rant. for officials. Rant. 
I mean, I mean, I don't know. I can tell you, after, out of all the games I've seen, there's not one official I can remember. There's not one call that I can remember being like, oh, that changed the game. So here I am hating on them, and we've gone through the first weekend of the tournament, and I can't remember one official. And that's awesome, because a lot of officials insert themselves into games, mm. and it just grows into the hate. So yeah. that's my love of basketball coming out in my hate of officials, and I'm so sorry about it. <laughs> Everybody, have you heard? So these Trappist monks want their money back. And according to legend, Trappist monks from France made their way to Vletteren, Belgium, I believe is how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. and uh, founded the St. Sixtus Monastery in 1831. And I'll be damned if they didn't find a clever way to make sure you stayed drunk. They got an amazing idea to start brewing beer as a way to pay thirsty labor workers while building the monasteries. Yeah. It was brilliant. Common practice in old days. You know about this. Pay people in beer. Pay them in beer. (laughs) Story goes that each worker was allowed up to two full beers per shift that worked as a form of payment. This led the monks to looking into brewing much more beer, now in an attempt at expanding the reach of the monastery. Any monies made were used to what they called sustain religious practice, and then they donated a lot of it to the needy. So for nearly two centuries, they've been brewing and selling three main varieties from 11 different Trappist breweries, all of which have brewing duties assigned to actual monks. Did yeah. You, so you knew, you know a lot about this, it seems, with your reactions. You've had it? You've had oh, one of the, beers? Oh, there's only a few. I mean, like, most Trappist beers are, like, really high gravity. At least the ones that you can buy, at, that you find around stores, are usually a high gravity, almost wine-like Right, like they're like in the ten, eleven percent range and stuff like that. I saw their top, at least their top three. One of them reaches into the tens. Yeah, yeah. One's like five point eight, one's eight point two, and one's ten point two. What brands did it? Are you talking about here? Uh, Blonde was the name of one, and then the number one is West Vletteren Twelve. It's been ranked as high as number one beer in the world. Oh wow! Currently number two. So they've seemed to perfect to have perfected their practice on three of them. With so much popularity, though, comes some issues. The monks aren't in the beer game to make a ton of money off of drunk people. They've made that statement over and over and over again. They're not in this for money, and they only want to brew enough to keep the city sustainable, Mm -hmm. basically where they are. They keep their prices low, their batches small, and their distribution local. When purchasing through them, it runs only about $3 a bottle. Buying a beer from them, however, seems to be just a little difficult. What, do they make you work to get a beer? (laughs) Check this out. So the beer phone, as it's called. Yes, I said beer, like bat phone. The beer phone. (laughs) Ring, ring. (laughs) It receives in the neighborhood of 85,000 calls an hour. Oh, my God. So getting through to them to make a reservation requires a ton of luck. And you have to make a reservation over the phone. Okay. Whoa. Once you do get through to make a reservation, your phone number is blocked from making another reservation for the for a period of 60 days. Wow. And your reservation has to come in 60 days in advance. So if I call them and got through today, then my order wouldn't be good until for, 60 days. For pickup for 60 days. Wow. And you have to pick up in person, okay? That's the next step. The vehicle picking it up must register their license plate, uh, all the info over the license plate to the monks, and then no vehicle that does a pickup can return again to do another pickup for a period of 60 days. Okay, so same rule, basically. So basically, you can only do one every two months. If you can even get through. And finally, the buyer states they have to agree that they have no intentions on reselling the beer to a third party which is what the biggest problem is and the biggest right. problem the monks have. So combine the popularity. I will of- say this. You were talking about like different kinds of Trappist-style beer. Now, maybe I've never had a real Trappist beer, but I've definitely had Trappist-style beers, you know, which are basically people trying to clone those kinds of beers. I don't think I've probably ever had a real one. But yeah, anyways. I mean, but they're-, they're also very high price. I can tell you that too. Like any of the ones that are like Trappist style ales are like expensive. And that's that's where they have their problem. So you combine the popularity of the beer with the scarcity of the beer, supply and demand, I think they call it, and understand how on secondary markets this beer can go for as much as ten times the original price. Yeah. Okay. Dutch supermarket chain Jan Linders was caught to be selling all three St. Sixtus varieties in their stores at a price equivalent to nearly $13 a bottle. Marking it up. From $3. They're getting it in bulk at $3 a bottle and then selling it for $13 a bottle in their store, in their grocery stores. 
Man. And been getting away uh, with it for some time. It wasn't even realized until it was uh, publicized online that shoppers were celebrating being able to get it. And then someone contacted the monastery and let them know. And then they sent them like a cease and desist letter. Well, they should. The power of social media, right? And, and monks that have cell phones. It's incredible. Or no, so. I guess somebody told the monks. but <laughs> Yeah, somebody told the monks. And I'm sure that the monks do have cell phones. You know, like that that kind of like crazy brewing stuff is a lot what I was talking about, like with the open vats. Yeah. They're those kinds of places that have just like this crazy process. They've been doing it this way for so long that it's just how it is. And just the natural yeasts in the air are the yeast that they want. And it's so good. And it's so good. It's that yeast. It's that yeast. <laughs> All right, man, we're going to take a break, but uh, what are we going to do when we come back? I'm going to come in with the Uber that killed a pedestrian, and uh, we're going to talk about some strippers. I'm going to break BRV off a piece of that $2 billion and then talk to you about 3D-printed homes. So, But until then... Hey, how's it going, Big Red Van listeners? Uh, my name is Reese Kitts. I'm Garrett Faust. And uh, we're, we're a part of a little podcast called Decent at Best. And what Decent at Best is, is we're a podcast where we ask you guys to send us in questions at our at our email called uh, decentatbestshow at gmail.com. And whatever question you want to ask, you send it in to us, and we'll answer it live on air. And we will answer them with answers that aren't great. We don't promise they'll be good. They probably won't be bad. They'll probably be around Decent at Best. Decent at Best pretty much sums up our show. We don't Google anything. Everything is all off the top. Off the, off the top of our head. So everything we answer is going to be completely first first impression, word association. So tune in to, the, to our episodes, and we appreciate it. See you guys there. Thank you. Everybody, have you heard? About a female pedestrian that was killed after she was struck by an autonomous Uber vehicle in Arizona. Come on. In response, Uber pulled all of its self-driving cars from the public roads in the entire state as well as cities in San Francisco, Toronto, and Pittsburgh. Lady got killed? Killed. By a driverless car. Well, right? they, That's what you said, right? It was in auto you, you mode. You said autonomous. It was in auto mode. However, none of those cars currently are driverless, though. Because somebody's sitting in the back of the passenger seat? Somebody's sitting in the, like, the driver's seat, like an Uber personnel, that is... They're basically a test thing. They're, like, running them. But there's an emergency driver that can, like, slam on the brakes or take control of the car. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out where blame's going to go now. Tell me what happened. Like, how'd this lady get killed? Do you know? She, okay, so the the crash occurred um, on Mill Avenue in Tempe, Arizona. Tempe. Tempe. Tempe, Tempe Arizona. I kind of couldn't say it. If one of y'all... <laughs> So the uh, the Uber vehicle was headed northbound when a woman walking outside of the crosswalk was struck. The woman was then taken to the hospital. So you said she was walking outside of the crosswalk. Yes, she was walking outside of the crosswalk. So that's important. And right? it was in auto mode. And it was in auto mode. Okay. Okay. But again, there's certain parameters that, you know, no car is uncap- is incapable of doing. So anyways, so of course Uber like makes a big announcement like we're so sorry, you know, we don't know how this happened, you know, but... full, full investigation and blah, 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 blah. So the Uber did confirm that it was in, a, like I said, autonomous mode and the driver was behind the wheel during the crash. This would make the first known actual death of a autonomous or death caused by an autonomous vehicle. Sure. So big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. Because that's the kind of stuff that scares people. See, this is why it hasn't even been in trial phases very long and it's already killing people. Yeah. That's the story for it. Yeah. Of course. So I wanted to put it in perspective real quick. Okay. And so like in California, we're going to use them as an example. They've got about a thousand auto driving cars with people behind the wheel too, right? Like they're just test vehicles, mm-hmm. like all out and about in the cities and stuff, running tests. 32 of them have had accidents. 13 of them were while the car was stopped. <laughs> so someone else hit them? Someone else hit them. Okay. So it was not even their fault. But 13 of them were in accidents involving someone hitting them while stopped. 14 of them were while the car was moving less than 10 miles an hour, two of which were were the 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 auto the autonomous car's fault but only one of them were when the car was in auto mode so the other time was when a, the actual driver was driving it okay so it still gets counted in the in the in the stats 
So, and then seven of them actually happened at 11 miles per hour or faster, but none of them were when it was in auto mode or the car's fault. Okay. So basically, there's been one accident ever in like the thousand that have been on the road that are actually to where the auto mode caused some sort of issue, and it was at a less than 10 mile an hour accident. Okay. And this is the first fatal one? And this is the first fatal one. Uh, So they're 50%? Of the accidents that they have are going to be fatal, or at least the ones 50% of the accidents they've had that were in auto mode <laughs> so have been again, fatal. There's the stat right now, 50% of all Cause accidents. Because you can skew them however you want. Exactly. You know what I mean? But it brings my, my brain to a thought of how black and white computers are. Because you said outside of the crosswalk. If it's outside of the crosswalk in the future, 25 years from now, and you get your head chopped off by a drone that's flying in a certain airspace... Then it's a black and white rule book. Nope. Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? I know. <laughs> I that, mean, I kind of, that's where I'm kind of at. Even right now, if there is a car coming and there's a crosswalk up there and you just walk out in front of a car, not at a crosswalk, you're still going to get hit by a person. Autonomous or not. Yes. yes of course. And I, I, from how it reads to me, that's what happened. It, it didn't say stepped out in front of traffic. No, but it said she was crossing the street outside of a crosswalk and got hit by a car. That means there was a car coming when she decided to cross the street in my brain. And now was the car able to stop in time? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like was that's, it a, she did she not see it? We don't we can't ask her, unfortunately. Right. But so that's that's where I'm at. I'm like I mean, how can you say that when there are rules that say you don't walk out in front of cars, you know, that are coming down the street, well, especially they, if you're not at a pedestrian crosswalk? They suspended everything, right? Yeah. They yeah. shut it all down. Mm-hmm. But oh. I mean, of course, you have to in an instant like that for PR. You have to like they got to rework it. D- if sure. another if another accident happened, dude, they'd have to shut the company down. Oh, yeah. You know, if another accident happened, God forbid, in the next day and they didn't shut it down. Of course. They would shut the whole company down. Oh yeah. So they have to. They have to react that but way. But I, th- so. I think it's still going to be one of those things. It's going to prove like because of course an investigation is happening. But I think the outcome is going to be Uber's not at fault. That it was like just merely an accident. That's what happens when you walk out in front of a car. Yeah. You know that's what I mean? Why they call it an accident. Exactly. Yeah. It, it is not good that it involved a pedestrian though. No. You know that's that auto mode. They were hoping that the. Stats are one hundred percent because if they involve a pedestrian, it's usually one zero car. Mm-hmm. So it, well, that's that's the big uh, you can't you don't want to get into any accidents with a pedestrian because none of them are going to turn out good, right? So and I think the big thing is the programming of them. Where where is morality lie in the programming of the AI? Does it kill you because it sees five pedestrians in front of you? Or do you kill the pedestrians because you're more important? Because you're the the, the, per, the person that's in the car. It depends on if it's in zombie mode. I mean, but you, if, but you know what I if mean? If it's in zombie mode, it accelerates through the, through the crowd of people. <laughs> but like, you know, like, yeah, you know, if, 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 if it can register, oh, there's pedestrians in a crosswalk and I cannot stop in time. Do I plow through pedestrians or do I force the car to swerve? You know, yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't I don't think they have the ability to swerve, but you understand what I'm saying. I totally like, do. <clears throat> I think by then their radar uh, capabilities are going to be so awesome that they'll be able to make a quick decision. Zombie, go through it. Baby, stop. <laughs> but you know, that's just it's just that's that's a big serious question of like what do they do? Kill you or kill these people? Dude, if, this, if your car, has to, to, if your car where... has to make a decision cuz you would make a split section reaction decision of whatever just, you know what I mean? That's going to be who knows what they're going to do. If with. your split second reaction decision is to hit the gas through a crowd of people, then God <laughs> no, help you. Nobody hits the gas. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm thinking the scenario of like careen off the cliff or plow through the crowd of people. You know, because you can't stop in time. There's only two options. Run into the I've people. I never thought about that scenario, Run honestly. into the people or run off the cliff. Holy shit, that's a tough one. You know, and then what does the car decide to do? Yeah. Does it decide to save you or save those people? Or do you decide to take them and go off the cliff anyway? <laughs> Which would suck. <laughs> suck really bad. Everybody have you heard. So we know there are over 7 billion people in the world, right? Yeah. It's probably closer to 8 now that we... It's like double what it was 30 years ago. Insane. So if you had to guess, what number would you say lived in what could be considered inadequate housing? Uh, How many billion people? Like what number of the 7 billion? That live in inadequate housing? Mm-hmm. Half. Not quite that high. 
Okay, a quarter. So at least one point two billion, according to a report by the World Resources. Oh wait, what did Institute. you say? <laughs> I said one point two billion out of seven. There are somewhere around 200 million people that live below the poverty line, at least. Okay. In these poverty-stricken areas... It's terrible, but it's ter- okay. It's terrible, but uh, such as El Salvador, there are ongoing projects by a company named New Story where they build houses for needy people, which gets tricky considering the terrain and the longevity of the house, mm-hmm. uh, built on mountainsides, that kind of thing. They have to keep in consideration weather, uh... Like I said, just the long-term nature of the project and the house being sustainable. That, with cost savings in mind, kind of right. kind of makes it a difficult It's got to be mass-producible for cheap. Here we are. They currently can build a 100-home community with our traditional methods that will average at a cost of around $6,000 per unit. And it takes them around eight months to complete this. Okay? All of them? To complete the 100-home community. Wow, that's pretty quick. (laughs) Enter a more robotics genius brought to us by South by Southwest Convention. So one thing I meant to look up is a lot of the most awesome things in the world that have come from the South by Southwest Convention, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure you've heard of SXSW, right? Oh, yeah. So lots of crazy tech-centric types of things. Inventions is really... In an Austin-based robotics construction company named Icon introduced a 3D-printed home, which was built on their mobile printer that they call the Vulcan. That's a great name. It can lay down a one-story, 650-square-foot house made of cement faster than you can Amazon Prime yourself a computer. Whoa, whoa. It, like, makes it out of concrete? In 12 to 24 hours. Damn! I mean, we're talking, like, a concrete slab and then, like, four walls, right? Correct. Okay. Nothing fancy. The prototype house that was brought to South by Southwest was equipped with a living room, bedroom, and even a detailed curved porch. Fancy. The company firmly believes this is only the beginning, and with uh, fine-tuning, the Vulcan will be able to provide much more detail. And they think after time, they can get the price down to $4,000 per unit, and they can do a house in a day. Dang. Both companies I've mentioned, uh, New Story and Icon, partnered together in 2017 to address the problem that uh, regarding El Salvador. Currently, the Vulcan printer is shelling out one house per day at around a cost of $10,000. But like they said, after they get the kinks ironed out and all that, throughout all of their prototype testing, they're going to get the cost down to $4,000 per unit. Wow. For Like I said, a 650-square-foot, one-person home. Well, for something like that, you're also paying for probably the small crew of people it takes to operate and then the concrete that goes into it yep and, and then and then maintenance and then you're buying just the materials that's what i mean the concrete that goes into mm-hmm. it which concrete's not cheap but i mean if that's the only thing that goes into building the structure of this house then that's not bad is that not insane i mean i've heard of people like uh, and it's actually the pictures of it are incredible to watch this big old thing i didn't I haven't watched a video of it yet mm-hmm. but the pictures are so cool i mean just imagine a 3d printer that's big enough to build a house yeah it's and it's mobile so obviously I've, I've seen people make their house that way where it's like cinder block walls that are like poured with concrete and then then you just put linoleum or siding on the sides so right. it doesn't look any different than any other house but your house could like a truck could run into it and you know it's fine not by the hair of my chinny chin <laughs> chin you know what i mean like it's tornado proof or whatever you know like so their next goal is to finish the testing and build around say 100 homes in el salvador by the end of next year so, yeah, that's my question. How safe are they? What kind of regulations can you program into this computer? Like, you know, statewide, obviously, building a house in El Salvador is not building a house in the United States. Yeah. Granted, maybe they don't ever want to come to the United States. Maybe they just want to help third world countries or, and these I mean, smaller people that don't have the housing because the market's there. Yeah. The market's there. Like I said, 1.2 billion people. That's more than enough people to try to market this project to. A cheap, And you market it to cities. I mean, the hell, they could use it for government housing instead of having these stacked on stacked on stacked fire hazard apartment complexes that we constantly constantly see on the news burning down. (laughs) Then maybe they can have a cement house. I mean, it's good house. Yeah, it's crazy. Four grand. Cement's good insulator, too. I'm going to need you to come throw one up in my backyard, brother. (laughs) Get my my mother-in-law off my couch. Be my man cave. (laughs) Everybody, have you heard? 
25-year-old Kansas City resident Karen Osuji. Kansas City. All right. Yeah, Missouri. Had a wild night at her local strip club with some of her friends. I'm a holiday bitch, don't you hear me? Karen was at a strip club called Bacala. Okay. B-A-C-C-A-L-A. All right. I don't want to say it too many times because I don't know what it means. (laughs) I don't either. But it was just past midnight and she was out with some of her friends when she observed a huge fight breakout between two of the strippers that were on stage. No way. A fight at a strip club. Shocking, right? On stage. Yep. Is that what you said on stage? Oh, yeah. Okay. So in typical strip club fashion... Oh, I'm sorry. One of the dancers who Karen later dubbed as the finger biter, or otherwise known as Diamond. Yep. Um, she was then escorted by security back to her dressing room because of the scuffle. Well, I mean, every gentleman's club that you know is worth its salt has a diamond. Of course. Yes. Or a cherry. Both. <laughs> so anyway, in um, typical strip club fashion, the fight didn't fizzle out. So more people got involved in the argument until a full-on brawl broke out in the club. I'm sure there were chicken wings being thrown across the room and (laughs) beers being thrown. Um, Not just punches. So Karen, she suddenly found herself in the middle of it all while she was waiting in line for the bathroom. Right. The bathroom was also right next to Diamond's dressing room. Of course it was. So fights going Um, on. Diamond must have been low on the ladder. Maybe. I mean, she's a finger biter, and she's got her dressing room right next to the bathroom. <laughs> a security guard grabs Diamond, bear hug style, because she's like apparently just screaming and flailing at It's what you do with a wild, crazy-ass stripper. So Karen, her arm is also, basically whenever a security guard reaches down to grab her, because she's like in the middle of all this, she also just somehow gets Karen's arm in his arm. Uh-oh. And he's this big, strong dude that's got his arms like locked, and her arms stuck up in his arm. I know where this is wrapped going. around Diamond. It's like I picked the wrong week when I'm filming. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, I mean, because they probably would have came in really handy at that point. But since Diamond was apparently the one who everyone was pissed at, uh, there were other girls like coming up and trying to attack Diamond while the bouncer was holding her tight. Uh oh. So Diamond, in her defense... So Diamond was low on the totem pole. Yeah. They did not like her. They already kicked her ass to the bathroom for her dressing room. (laughs) You know, no, you use the sink for the shower. (laughs) It's a whore bath. (laughs) So she's like... So they're taking their opportunity while he's holding her. They're just probably coming in getting clean shots on I I mean, I'm assuming he's trying to, like, drag her out of there is what's going down, and they're, like, coming after her. Have you ever seen a strip club fight? I've seen videos of strip club <laughs> fights. <laughs> Bouncers usually kind of let the justice be the street justice, you know. Oh, well. Well, either way, they're trying to get at her, and so she's, like, snapping her teeth at her and biting at people who are trying to get in close to her. Mm. Karen, living up to her name, the unlucky one trapped against Diamond, found her hand too close to Diamond's face. Shit. So Karen is quoted saying, I'm trying to pull my hand out, and by the time I do, boom, finger gone. Finger gone. <laughs> <laughs> boom, gone. That's how she said it, finger gone. So uh, she said she was immediately rushed across the street because there was a fire department there um, seeking emergency medical attention. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. A stripper just bit my finger off. I need to go to a hospital. Well, that's exactly best of what Give happened. Give me an AIDS test. <laughs> the fire department couldn't do anything for her, so they were like, um, you need to go to the hospital. Oh, this isn't 1950, ma'am. Yeah. They don't train us in those things these days. We're not delivering babies at the fire department <laughs> anymore. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Down the street. So her friend, Allie, she goes back into the club. And at this point, Diamond has fled the scene. But uh, she goes back in the club to find her finger. Successfully, she does. Just in the floor (laughs) after Diamond bit it off. See, I mean, the vets of the strip club, they know when you see a finger on the ground, you leave it there. (laughs) You don't touch it. Yeah. So she rinses it off, throws it in a cup of ice, and and she goes back towards the hospital meet them there so the re this is super well documented because this girl had like a snapchat thing going on about it that like all of her friends have like now shared and it's just become this big viral thing for this lady so the whole thing like start to finish is pictures and pictures and videos and snaps of her talking about all this the whole time so she surprisingly remains calm and like humorous the whole time so i don't know if she's just really drunk for all this or not but she's also quoted to one of her snaps where she says my finger's gonna be ugly on my wedding day 
day. No one's going to want to marry me because I have a fucking midget finger. <laughs> so I was going to ask what finger was it, and you just answered it. It was her ring finger. <clears throat> ring finger on her left hand? But again, like I said, she was in good spirits, and then one of her later snaps, she says, uh, at the end of the day, my finger goes, but what's sobbing going to do? Bitch, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that that quote, did you get it verbatim? Oh, yeah, that's, that's verbatim. That's yeah. verbatim? Yeah. I was trying to be specific there. Sounds like it wasn't her first strip club fight. It might not have been. She's probably been in a fisticuffs or two with Diamond before. But, unsuccessfully, the tip of her finger was not able to be saved and reattached. So Yikes. The, the the tip knuckle is gone. Mm. That's where. That's basically where it got cut off. Like she bit it from the the first digit of the ring finger off. Dude, fingers got some meat to them. Oh, Can you? you ima- I don't even want to think about that. Someone just biting your finger off, or or what it would take to bite someone else's finger off. Adrenaline, adrenaline is what I, it would take. I guess so. There's no I'm, way like me or you right now could just bite off a finger. Like <laughs> no, you know. I mean, you'd have to give me some very horrible news. <laughs> first to get me really amped up and then maybe i have some people just relentlessly be punching you or something and just i don't know maybe be in a strip club fight where the only way out bear hugged by the yeah by the bouncer bite them bite your way out because that's a lot of strippers bite their way out everybody have you heard so the amount of money spent on advertising blows my mind Every time I hear a figure on it. Well, we've talked about Netflix and everybody else and all their marketing. You know, it's what was it? When we talked about Netflix, what was it? $750 million? That they were adding, yeah, to yeah. their budget this yeah. year alone. Yeah, just in marketing and yeah. online marketing. So whether it's how much a 30-second Super Bowl ad costs to how much product companies give away to people for free to marketing online and the millions of ways that there are to do that. Like last year, advertisers spent around $1 billion just on Instagram, what's called, quote-unquote, influencer marketing. You ever heard about this? Mm. Give us a piece of this $2 billion. Like, I'm going to, we need to concoct a plan, like sidebar influencer after Influencer marketing. And that number is expected to double by next year, $2 billion. Once an account on Instagram has at least 10,000 followers, it can qualify for influencer marketing platforms. Which is basically companies that hook up with influencers. So with, that's like <clears> the girl with the fashion blog that has, get, has 30, a purse. followers. That a per, they, somebody wants her to have this purse mm-hmm. in her Instagram pictures. Mm-hmm. And they play it off like it's just, I like this purse. And and, it's well, not, either that or talk about it or whatever. It's Even if it's promoted, it's still giving them the visibility of I guess, I guess of their my product. brain was going to influencer marketing. Like you play it off like you're not running an ad for it. Like, it's just what I like. Well, it's basically, once you get to that level, the 10K, you get hooked up with this broker. (laughs) This broker finds you brands that want your uh, followers, based on kind of who you are, Mm -hmm. to see their brands. And they pay you money. It's pretty much easy at that point. Post as much as possible, and they pay you a bunch of money. Now, the problem with all this recently has been the rising awareness of a little thing called bots. Oh, yeah. So... And how they themselves influence the internet in ways one might not ever even think was possible. Explain. Collusion. Oh, oh. (laughs) You're talking about that. (laughs) The the threshold to be an influencer, like we said, is 10,000 followers. They didn't specify if they had to be real followers, right? The idea goes like this. Start a fake account, buy thousands of followers for as low as $500, which also comes with thousands of likes and comments. And as long as you keep your fake followers a secret, you can keep raking in the money. Mm-hmm. So companies have started to uh, invest more money in these anti-bot farms. So you've heard of bot farms before. There's yeah. now anti-bot farms. These <laughs> companies that are writing algorithms to be able to determine if accounts are real based on certain things that are posted or based on certain other things. And right, right, right. They can, able run, to determine, they can run all those usernames and decide whether or not they're real people or not. Correct. I mean, a study uh, from a couple years back found that 8% of Instagram accounts are fake. And on average, over 16% of the top 20 Instagram account fo- accounts followers are fake. So, for example, if you have 8 million followers, around 1.2 million of them are fake. Incredible. Isn't that crazy? Wow. 
So certain advertisers who invest heavily in influencer marketing care more about reach than substance. So they probably don't care much what each account posts, just how many people love it and like it. And And is their product involved in it? How much it was posted. So as long as the rates most advertisers pay is based mostly on follower count instead of other qualitative things, this problem will definitely keep happening. Yeah. So it's just it's sure. all based on followers. Remember episode 20-ish? We talked to Carson, mm-hmm. Mr. Carson Nicely, actor probably doing really well for himself now. Man, he's uh, been posting stuff. You know, we haven't touched back with him lately. We but need yeah, to. He's been posting all sorts of things Of course, going on. man. He's going to be a model before we know it. He's going to be in like a Calvin Klein jeans ad. <laughs> um, but he talked about that. He talked about it's all followers. Yep. That's all. It's a number. And you're, you're rated on those things. And you can get paid because of those things. So let's get us some fake followers. And <laughs> let's get some influencer marketing money on this. Heck yeah, man. I'll take this. BRV, $2 billion, man? Fake can... likes will still make you feel good. Uh, <laughs> I will take a little bit of it. $2 billion is a lot to go around. All right, man. So we've got one more break, and then we're going to round out the episode. I'm coming back with uh, Plasma. Have you ever donated Plasma? I... I've thought about it, but never actually did. Well, Plasma is a $20 billion business. We're going to talk about that. Well, I'm going to talk about it's sad, but Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's some guys that eat some sandwiches. Hey, Big Red Band listeners. I'm Levi Johnson, brother of Hayden Johnson, who I believe you're listening to right this very second. And I have a podcast about sandwiches with my good friend... Walt Braley, and I will be filling in as interim host while Joe Blackstock is off traveling through time. Yeah, Joe has gone back in time to find the first sandwich, so you can hear about those escapades in the upcoming episodes of SandwichCast. So listen to us, you can find us on iTunes, and you can follow us on Instagram at at SandwichCastPod. SandwichCast. SandwichCast. It's in your mouth. Everybody, have you heard... I'm sure you guys have seen the the headlines about Stephen Hawking passing away. Yep. ALS, you know, that's what he had. That's what killed him. Lou uh, Gehrig's disease, right? Yep. Yep. That's what ALS is, yeah. Oh, yeah, duh. That's like At least the, it's been dubbed the Lou Gehrig's yeah, yeah, disease. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm like, sorry. Because he was the famous guy that had it. So, either way, like, he was diagnosed. With, this is what's crazy. And I think this is just one of the, like, he's like a one in a million kind of person. Is he got diagnosed when he was 21 in 1963 shit i knew it was young told him he had two years to live and he died at 76 i feel like that just alone like Mm -hmm. not even touching on all his other achievements is like just shocking enough yep so what i thought was really will to live i believe is what they call it yeah i mean he just dude this guy contributed to the world one of my favorite things about him is he uh is he's one of those people that now has a a thing named after him. His thing is Hawking radiation. And what Hawking radiation is, is basically Stephen Hawking was the one that showed how black holes eventually have an end. So like you would think, like I'm sure you know most people can picture a black hole, the gravity that gets out of control and crushes down into a singularity is what you know. You know, and it's like infinitely small. We used to think that they would just be there forever, but what hawking was able to describe was that they actually kind of evaporate the radiation that these black holes put out is so much radiation that it actually makes particles form out in space outside of the black hole and creates matter again that escapes from the black hole until the black hole eventually dissipates into nothing into nothing but into all those little particles again yeah and those particles become other matter and turn into other things huh yeah, like I just that's I think that's crazy cool. And he came up with that after he was. This is uh, I think it was like I can't remember actually how long ago he did. Uh... Well, you said in '63 is when he was diagnosed, and then how quickly did his symptoms progress? Because ALS is pretty debilitating over years. For him to be able to live that long with it is amazing. Oh yeah, but he didn't ever stop doing research. You know, Stephen Hawking has been working, writing books, everything for all the time of his disease. Mm-hmm. He. Uh, one of the cool things is he has a um, he the what he first used once because by the seventies his ability to speak was going away. So about seven years in to the disease, after he was diagnosed, he started to lose his speech, and then by nineteen eighty five he couldn't speak at all. 
like had totally lost it. And so uh, he came up with this program called Equalizer, which was a hand switch to select letters. And then he could select, move the stick another direction to turn it into a word. And then he could move it another direction to turn it into a common phrase. So like he could basically just be moving this stick left up, left, you know, different directions. And those directions coincided with putting letters, words, sentences, and phrases together. Sure. And all that would come up on a computer screen and then fed through a speech synthesizer out loud. And that's kind of where the the Stephen Hawking voice comes from. If you've ever heard him on anything ever, he's always used the same voice. Right. It's like he could very easily get someone or maybe an attempt to recreate how his voice actually sounds. But I do think that was kind of fun. That like With all the resources he had, he always kept that same just, you know, Stephen Hawking mm-hmm. robot voice. You know, I, I just think that was kind of cool. Yeah, that was kind of his thing, wasn't it? Yeah, he could have Denzel Washington do his voice. Morgan Freeman. Oh, Morgan Freeman. You know, he could have someone with a badass voice mm-hmm. do it. But no, he, he's going to keep with the robot. This allowed him to speak about 15 words a minute, so it was pretty slow still, though. The stick thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then in the 2000s, they came up with this cool thing that was involved his cheek. The tiniest little movements in his facial muscles would register on this screen that's or this camera that's looking at him, and that basically he could talk by moving subtle movements in his face. Wow! Yeah, I, I bet he got really good at winking. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because that's part of it is like which direction he looks with his eyes. Yep. You know, it's basically every little part of his face that he could still kind of move. And, I th- and I'm pretty sure later on the technology developed was, and this was like in like 2011, where his technology got to where it was strictly just his eyes. Where like he could just, because he, he got to the point where he could barely even move his face. Totally immobile, yeah. Yeah. And so just up, down, left, right, diagonal, whatever, just like the stick thing back in the day he could do that with his eyes but he was also super good at it and it was pre-programmed to speak in his vernacular and short phrase and stuff like that so like it was programmed for him if there's anybody that has the money to get the right people working on it i mean he was a very wealthy man like he numerous books numerous papers that and the fact that there's i'm sure a lot of people that are Kind of in not necessarily personally invested, but really uh, emotionally invested on him being taken well care of and having the best uh, software that can recognize words and having the best uh, care and all of those things. I'm sure wealth or not, I'm sure there there were a lot of people that would have looked after him. Oh, yeah. So because uh, of his contributions. (laughs) One last thing I thought this this is something I just saw on the Internet the other day. I thought it was really funny. It said uh, Stephen Hawking. You know, within hours of meeting God, had already explained to God how he doesn't exist via mathematics. <laughs> Everybody, have you heard? So you said that you've never donated plasma? Nope. Blood? Nope. For any local disaster in the area or just to get beer money? I know that I sound like a shitty person for saying no, but no, I'm not. Actually. No, I mean, hell, if you haven't been around a bunch of disasters, I mean, if you have and you're not, then yeah, you're a shitty person. If hey. it was like, we need everybody in the area to come down because there's you're an like, emergency, no. I mean, I would be no, Nobody there. wants my ginger blood anyways. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I personally did quite a few times my freshman year, donated plasma, my freshman year of college at Nebraska to supplement my income, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. That so. was uh, that was basically, you know, like I said, I researched it and looked into it, but I just never actually went and did it. I, I remember it being a relatively popular thing among people my age. Oh, it was. I mean, I knew lots. Of, I still know people that do it. Yeah, I mean, not for the health benefits of it either. No, no, no. They just because they can make an extra like 120 bucks a month doing it. Doing it solely, like you said, for the purpose of cash. No regards to the scientific advancements and possible lives being saved. I mean, I'm sure they feel Straight. good about it. But. Yeah. <laughs> feel good about that $50 in your pocket. Yeah. So between 2000 and 2015, the blood plasma market went from $5 billion to over $20 billion. While the blood market itself has dropped from $5 billion in 2008 to $1.5 billion. So blood versus plasma. Plasma, $20 billion annually. Blood, $1.5 billion. Nobody <laughs> buys the blood from you. It's all free donated. You, my friend, are smart. Quick biology review, though. Blood is a mixture of different cells, and plasma is its liquid component. Yep. I asked myself the same thing. You're probably asking each other if plasma is part of blood. Why? What makes them different, right? Plasma the solution is the solution that all the blood cells are floating around in. So the answer that you just kind of gave is that blood can only be donated. Plasma can be sold. 
So before 1971, blood was bought and sold just like plasma and any other damn thing. Mm -hmm. And then a a study came out that concluded that, quote, purchased blood was more likely to contain hepatitis. Oh, yeah, because people are going to want to sell it. The the most desperate people are going to want to get any dollars they can from anything. Of course. It's like a car that you're sending out to, you know, the junkyard. Exactly. And just drain it of its blood. All that's going to do is say, hey, all you people that are very sick and, you know, have no other means of making money, <laughs> you know. Give me your blood. They're going to try and sell their blood. And that's right. how you're, you're – that's right. Well, it's, it prompted an FDA regulation that all person-to-person blood transfusions come from volunteers, pretty much evaporating a global market for buying and selling blood. So fast forward to the mid-80s, and a process called fractionation was invented, which made it possible to extract proteins from plasma and then use those proteins to develop drugs. So the FDA ban only applied to fresh blood, not products that were, quote, used for further manufacturing, and this caused the donation rooms to start popping up all over the country. So uh, the U.S. quickly became known as the plasma capital of the world, we supply around 70% of the world's plasma while only operating on 40% of the demand. Okay. Do other countries not buy it from people? Well, they have restrictions. I'm getting to that. Uh, so this is probably because U.S. citizens can sell up to 104 times per year. So you, you, and I, you or I could go donate 104 times a year. Wow. Right? I think it's twice a week is what you can do. That's 152 times two. Wow. Twice a week you can go. Compared to the global norm, which is 45 times per year, on average around the world. More than double what others are allowed to donate. <laughs> They're just like, you know what? It's okay if it's a little unsafe. Like, we need to keep that $20 billion coming in. Our scientists, at least scientists here in America, are seeing a huge value in plasma. So they're just allowing people to donate twice as much as other countries are, and they mm-hmm. just want it to get. They want to get as much as they can. They're like, "Hey, nobody's dropping dead yet." I mean, you earn fifty dollars sitting there and eating oranges. You know, yep. Just that's it. Making it, making a fist. Here's your cookie. Pump your fist for me. <sighs> so it works out really well for the pharma companies because they can buy plasma for around one hundred and fifty dollars and sell it for close to five hundred. The sneaky bastards. And just from 2006 to 2016, the last 10 years, donations tripled in the United States. And the rollouts have already started with many more donation centers all across the country. Wow. Don't don't be surprised if it's one of the, like, startups that you start to see in places. Along with these, like, tech companies, you're going to see plasma donation and collection companies. We want your plasma. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. I might have to go donate some plasma. Yeah, man. You get your 50 bucks, like I said, and some oranges. It's fun. Uh, no, I, I remember doing it when I didn't want to work at the restaurant that I worked at in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. So my boss was a piece of shit. And they just, you know, they just, you know, I worked at a restaurant. Right. So I was the new guy, the new server. So, and it was shitty. Anyway, that's my list. That's that, that it for you. That's all I got. Word, son. I think we're about to get blown down like uh, I was saying earlier about the Big Bad Wolf. We got some weather we're dealing with, so let's go ahead and wrap up. Yep, yep. But thank you, everybody, for listening to 39. We appreciate it, and we're going to catch you on the next one.